You're all most gracious. Please be seated. I guess I'll take that as a sign of hope. Um, Okay, the hook, be a sinner and sin boldly, is Luther himself. It's one of his most famous um, sound bites, and uh, it's taken out of context usually. And I hope, if nothing else, that, um, that this lecture gives you a sense of what he might have meant by that and why he said it. Um, First, a prelude. The name of Luther is not to be found among those author teachers who return to St. John's every year in the formal listing of our program, but his presence and influence are very much with us, nevertheless, in the work of the freshman and sophomore years. The freshman learned to sing four chorales from Bach's St. Matthew Passion, at least four. The sophomores then learn some more. The chorale, a singable metrical tune with a sacred text, is a musical form that originates with Luther, who wrote the words and sometimes the music too to some 30 chorales. The most famous of these, of course, is Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott. A firm stronghold is our God. Wonderful, brief, monosyllabic words in the German, inspired by the words of Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength. Bach's Matthew Passion is written some 200 years later, and his chorale settings are both more regular and elaborate than any of Luther's, and he is but one of the legatees of a rich tradition that begins with Luther and the Reformed Liturgy of the Lutheran Church. The rich and varied tradition of hymns and spiritual sins that are integral to worship and prayer, building up community, all flow from this innovation of Luther's, no matter how simple or how elaborate. The chorale is thus the musical expression of the faith of a community of believers using soul and voice to express the deepest yearnings of the human heart for God, whether in greatest joy or in deepest sorrow. I think we feel some sense of the directness and power of this musical form simply as a musical form. As we learn and sing Bach chorales and African-American spirituals in freshman music. We should note here as we begin, too, that the biblical text of Bach's Matthew Passion is itself a setting of Luther's vigorous German translation of Matthew's narrative of the suffering and death of Jesus. Luther translated the entire New Testament using the second edition of Erasmus' Greek New Testament the Textus Receptus of 1519, in a mere matter of 10 to 11 weeks, while in hiding in the Wartburg Castle after the imperial ban pronounced on him by Charles V 
at the Diet at Worms in 1521. Luther's was the first German translation from the original Koine Greek text, and it was published in 1522. A media event, like so many of his other works, when its first printing sold out in two months to be followed subsequently by many more. And this put the scriptures in the hands of whoever could read them. Luther had initiated a truly revolutionary project that culminated with the publication of the entire Bible in German, translated from the Hebrew as well as the Greek, 12 years later in 1534. Its appearance inspired in turn the numerous editions that subsequently appeared in other languages throughout Europe. Fast forward now to all of us here. Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist, believer and non-believer alike, using an array of translations, old and new, in seminar, who first read and ponder, then discuss and question and argue the longest single series of readings in the sophomore reading list, all taken from this book? Or is it a library called the Bible? This is not all just history, but begging your indulgence a bit more, let me provide a brief account of how Luther arrives on the scene to borrow a favorite phrase of Hegel's. In 1513, Albrecht, the younger of the two young Margraves of Brandenburg, having graduated from the University of Frankfurt am Oder and aspiring to a high ecclesiastical position, since he couldn't succeed to become number one, he became the Bishop of Magdeburg. That costs money. Yet, he also sought to become one of the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire, like his older brother Dietrich, who had become the elector of Brandenburg with the privilege and the power of electing the next emperor. He, however, did not have to become a bishop to do it. So when the electoral see of Mainz became vacant the next year, Pope Leo X agreed to make Albrecht the Archbishop of Mainz if he would make a substantial contribution to the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And to this end, he authorized the sale of indulgences in Albrecht's two dioceses, thereby enabling him also to pay back a substantial loan he owed to the banking house of Fugger. All of this is just so amazingly interconnected. This was the preaching and sale of indulgences that provoked an obscure monk named Martin Luther to challenge the very principle of and corruption rife in this practice, and ultimately the power and authority of the Roman Catholic Church with its spiritual, intellectual, political, and moral hegemony over a largely, but certainly not entirely, Christian Europe. Who was this Luther? 
it's perhaps as important to know something about his experience and life in order to follow his thought as it is to know about Augustine's life as we read the Confessions. Born in Saxony, Luther at age 19 is sent by his father, a manager of mines in Mansfeld, to the University of Erfurt, ultimately to qualify his son for the practical and profitable study of law. How many fathers have done that sort of thing? Luther's, you know, Handel was supposed to be a lawyer. Can you imagine? Luther studies philosophy for four years, earning a master's degree from the faculty in 1505. And in that same year, shortly after he's enrolled, we might say finally, as a law student, he abruptly withdraws and enters the monastic order of St. Augustine, a teaching order of strict religious observance. Also a mendicant order, which means you have to spend a fair amount of time begging. What accounts for Luther's sudden change? On the way back home from Erfurt, he is caught in a powerful storm when a flash of lightning and deafening thunderbolt bring him to his knees. In terror for his life and the state of his soul, he cries out, Help me, St. Anne, and vows to become a monk. A year later, in 1506, he makes his final vows as a monk at Erfurt, begins his formal study of theology, and is ordained a priest in 1507. Transferred the next year to the Augustinian monastery in the small town of Wittenberg with its newly founded university, he earns his bachelor's degree in biblical theology there and continues his studies for four more years in order to become a doctor of theology by 1512. Theology frees him from the duties he finds onerous as a lecturer in moral philosophy. And this is where I think St. John's people will begin to prick up their ears. Such as teaching the ethics of Aristotle and scholastic moral philosophy. Luther can now begin teaching biblical theology, lecturing first on Genesis and Psalms, and perhaps more importantly, Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Galatians, using the first controversial edition, 1516, of Erasmus' New Testament, with a Latin translation that corrects the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, which, until this time, was the only version of the Bible known by Western Christians for nearly a thousand years. And the church deemed that translation to be equally inspired. So here was Erasmus correcting an inspired book. The first lobes with facing Greek and Latin. He is also reading extensively in the writings of Augustine, Jerome, and the early church fathers. Throughout this time of intensive study, Luther is a scrupulously observant monk and with a rigorous spiritual life of penance, fasting, and self-mortifications, sometimes spending as long as six hours in a single agonizing session of confession. And now finally, here is Luther's own account of his state. And you have this on your handout. 
Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. How dreadfully paradoxical this is, that one who devotes himself to the ascetic life of strict monastic observance with all of its duties, including the, and who has immersed himself in biblical study, including learning both Greek and Hebrew, in order to go beyond the limits of the Latin Vulgate and bring himself even closer to the original words and texts of scriptures, should find himself in such a distraught and disturbed state. Luther despairs of his own salvation and finds nothing that either has done or can do to be capable of providing a remedy. His words are reminiscent of the words of Eliphaz, rebuking Job. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. Troubles overwhelm him because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty. Luther is aware that such profound despair approaches the negative limit of the human soul. In his Summa, St. Thomas Aquinas, whom Luther called the greatest chatterbox among all the scholastic theologians, understands despair as an aversion from the immutable good that is God, and thus contrary to the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, each of which has God as its object. It is thus among the greatest of sins. It leads to the death of the soul and is thus unforgivable. Nevertheless, the distraught Luther keeps raging and reading. He continues, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, which turns out to be the first chapter of Romans, where Paul, quoting the Hebrew prophet Habakkuk, states, For in the gospel, the righteousness, dikaiosune, of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther continues, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous one of God, the just man, is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. This may be the first time that this expression is used in this kind of a context. And entered paradise itself through open gates, 
Thereupon, I ran through scriptures from memory, and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the words righteous of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. What does passive righteousness mean? Could it really be so that the arguments of really be so that the arguments of moral philosophy from the ancients and the scholastics whom he was studying and everything else, could it be that all of this effort and these works were needless and useless for salvation? That God imputes or attributes righteousness or justice to the believer because of the obedience of Christ? Is this the paradox of the cross, that in it death and gift coincide? The paradox that Paul says is at once a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And we'll try, I guess, as this goes on to make sense, particularly that latter claim of Paul's. This is Luther's seminal, what shall we call it, insight, epiphany, experience that comes to him while beating importunately upon Paul, as life-changing as being thrown to the ground was earlier. From his table talks, we learn that this realization occurred to him in the heated room in similar circumstances that he calls a black tower too, and if you will, we can't help but think of Descartes a hundred years later in a warm room having his seminal insight into what became his system. Very different. Um, two years, this, was, this experience was just about two years after he had sent his famous disputation on the power of indulgences, the 95 theses as we know them, to Archbishop Albrecht. He probably never nailed them on the door at Wittenberg. Don't you love revisionist history? It's analogous to the moment described in Confessions 8 when Augustine hears the voice of a child on a swing from a neighboring garden singing, Tole, lege, tole, lege, take up and read, take up and read, which prompted him to open his scriptures to a passage in Romans as well, whereby instantly, in Augustine's words, by a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all gloom and doubt vanished away. Certainty at last, very different, very different from the certainty that philosophers so often seek. Suffice to say that these moments of realization for both are not simply the work of reason, but neither are they wholly ineffable. And that's holy with a W. Um, that is to say that they're not, they're, it's not as if reason has been jettisoned. But the experience is somehow taking them beyond it. Augustine writes, For you converted me to yourself, convertisti enum ad te, both leave us wondering about exactly what has happened and how. Both move from being heart-sick to being heart-struck. 
Augustine leaves his common-law wife of many years, mother of his son, Adeodatus, and also his profession as a rhetorician. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, too. No, I mean, really, and, and I'm not making this up. And then pre- presents himself for baptism to Bishop Ambrose of Milan. Luther now reads Augustine's lengthy late treatise on the spirit and the letter, finding his own reading of Paul on righteousness confirmed for the most part. By the way, it's kind of amazing. Apparently, it was a long time before Luther read Augustine. And here he was, an Augustinian. You know, but um, there are many paradoxes in education over the centuries. But for both Augustine and Luther, it might be said that the arduous way up and out is only by means of the very, very difficult way down. Just think of Dante, the Inferno and the Purgatorio. As different as these two individuals, Augustine and Luther, are, the anguish felt by both of them is a necessary, integral part of what each comes to experience and realize, and somehow know. Augustine summarizes the process with the most famous line, perhaps, of his confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Luther's disquiet has been more harrowing and agonizing, bringing him to the spiritual death of despair, to the brink of it. He is convinced that whatever he might do cannot count for anything as justifying him before God. All this endless, active, toilsome, fruitless labor of achieving salvation on his own is as futile as if I were to try to get across College Creek by sitting on my ergometer on the dock and rowing ever more vigorously. As he looks about him first, at the life of the monastery and university, and then at the devotional piety of ordinary Christians in Wittenberg, Luther sees two kinds of bondage that appear to him to stem from a common source, adherence to law. What may surprise us is that this includes all laws, the human laws of the social order, the natural law so central to the philosophers, and even the divine law of the Torah as he has just said explicitly. But then there is the gospel itself, distilled and transformed into a kind of moral catechism, an additional set of prescriptions threatening us with righteousness and wrath. In his lectures on Galatians of 1519, and I'll spend some time with this, Luther claims that such a reading is tantamount to a perversion and betrayal of the gospel, teaching people, as he says, nothing but decrees of popes and traditions of men treated in such a way that it does not differ at all from laws and moral precepts. He recognizes, again, a deep spiritual kinship with Paul, the apostle who was thrown off his horse on the road to Damascus, hearing a voice that turned him around. Paul, who was then first to come to the Galatians, proclaiming that God had achieved through Jesus as Messiah both 
in justification and with the gift of the Holy Spirit, only to find his return to them, that is, Paul finding his return to them, um, his message had been modified by other preachers from Jerusalem who claimed that justification was incomplete without also observing the works of the law. Jesus himself had observed these laws, and so, these preachers say, must the Galatians. Paul, with characteristic zeal, both rebukes his beloved Galatians and underlines his original message, and this is from his letter. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or or by believing what you had heard? Are you so foolish? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work by miracles among you, by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard? So, and then Paul continues, so Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15. Understand then, he says, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. In Paul's reading of Genesis, Abraham's righteousness is credited to him, not because of his adherence to the work and reliance upon the works of any law, but through his unwavering faith in God's promise that despite their advanced age, he with Sarah will become the father of many nations. Luther notes that in this, Paul, he says, totally demolishes reliance on our own righteousness because there is need of a far different righteousness, a righteousness beyond all works of the law, namely a righteousness of the works of God and his grace. Luther realizes from this that it is by faith alone, sola fide, and divine grace alone, sola gratia, that he was relieved of the torments of despair he experienced. Reading then the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray, as related in Luke's gospel, he identifies himself with the latter, who, standing at a distance, beats his breast in contrition and prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luther pays special attention to the importance of the final lines of Jesus in telling this parable. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Is this the only way, then? Where is this faith? In the heart? In the head? Or in, in works? Luther, throughout his lectures on Galatians, both his this early work of 1519 and the larger, later book of 1535 stresses that there are two ways in which human beings seek to be justified, and they are as contrary as the ways of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke. Listen and consider here his critique of the philosopher. There is the external way, by works, on the basis of one's own strength, of such a nature is human righteousness, which we acquire by practice and by habit. 
This is the kind of righteousness Aristotle and the other philosophers describe, the kind produced by the laws of the state and the church and ceremonies, the kind produced at the behest of reason and by prudence. For they think that one becomes righteous by doing righteous things, temperate by doing temperate things and the like. The kind of righteousness, the law of Moses, even the Decalogue itself also brings about, namely, when one serves God out of fear of punishment or because of the promise of reward, does not swear by God's name, honors one's parents, etc. This is a servile righteousness. It is mercenary, feigned, specious, external, temporal, worldly, human. Luther loves adjectives. It profits, it profits nothing for the glory to come, but receives in this life its reward, glory, riches, honor, power, friendship, well-being, or at least peace and quiet and fewer evils than those who act otherwise. This is how Christ describes the Pharisees and how St. Augustine describes the Romans in the first book of his City of God. Luther speaks here not only from his knowledge of Aristotle, whose ethics he taught for four years at Erfurt and Wittenberg, but from the scriptures to which he now devotes himself almost exclusively, and especially too, probably most especially, and I think this is so distinctive of Luther, his own immense struggle to make himself worthy and the way beyond this. A preoccupation with laws and traditions leads to the kind of busyness with works that leads to forgetfulness of love. As Luther reads in Galatians 5.14, Paul says there, the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he is prompted, Luther then is prompted to ask from this, good at this time of the year, why then do we busy ourselves with so many books? Why do we look for many teachers? Why do we exert ourselves with works and righteousness? All laws, all books, and all works must be tested according to this inward feeling and disposition of the heart. External patterns do not motivate us sufficiently because they are not felt and they are not alive. This pattern, however, is felt within. It is alive, and it teaches most effectively, not with letters, not with words, and not with thoughts, but with the actual feeling of experience, a living indication, an inward reminder, a proof of what you owe your neighbor. You owe him exactly what you owe yourself. And from the same disposition of heart. In contrast to this inner disposition, all of these works serve gain, that is, the works that he was preoccupied with, serve gain more than love. So this inward disposition of love, this feeling, is a pattern then? Isn't this going back to nature? Aristotle's central notion 
in the Nicomachean Ethics, which, by the way, neither enjoins love of neighbor universally nor allows the possibility even of friendship with a God because of the problem of inequality in both instances, let alone the possibility of loving the unlovable. So, is this disposition of love that Luther finds not only in Paul, but in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses says, the word is very near to you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may obey it, simply and purely good? Luther here remembers that moral theology would warn that, quote, nature is a most deceitful emulator of grace, to which he replies, I admit that nature tries mightily to emulate grace, but only as far as the cross, where it turns aside completely and fights against grace being offended. The ancients used a flinty slate um, that they called the Lydian touchstone to test gold and silver. Luther picks this up as a metaphor, and he says, the cross becomes the Lydian touchstone, enabling me to essay whether I am truly a friend of my neighbor. How so? Because it points to demands, something beyond what is pleasant or agreeable, advantageous or useful, or even agreeably and magnificently virtuous in my neighbor. Namely, in its highest form, the agape that Paul describes famously in 1 Corinthians 13, the highest enduring love. Luther recalls the formulation in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them and then confesses the bold opinion, his own words, that perhaps the self-interested love that forgets neighbor and looks intently on its own interests can alone become the right kind of love when one forgets oneself and serves only one's neighbor. The love that is wrong when it is simply in itself is of a different order. When it is outside itself, and in God, he says. And he then continues, with my affection for myself and my love for myself completely dead, I look for nothing but that God's completely undefiled will be done in me. This is arduous and very difficult. And this is a very important addition. And for nature, it is impossible. For nature, it is impossible. This becomes possible only once the spirit of love has been received by the hearing of faith. Self-serving adages such as, I must first be a neighbor to myself, or I'm my own best friend, or charity begins at the home, unqualified by the recognition that you must be a neighbor to someone else, are heathen and perverted, contrary to the spirit as political beings, we must look beyond the self to the larger field of the other as neighbor 
and to the social realm, where each must be subject to the laws of emperors, popes, towns, states, and provinces. Only, and here he reminds us, as Christ says, to avoid giving offense to them and in order not to injure love and peace, thereby avoiding schisms and dissensions. Luther confesses, acknowledges that he's, quote, in the habit of calling certain papal laws acts of tyranny because they are merely devices for snaring money by means of indulgences, serving godlessness, destroying true righteousness and love. But then he does this strange turn and says, nevertheless, for the sake of love, they should be observed wherever contempt for them would cause offense. All the same, Paul tells the Galatians to walk by the Spirit and not to gratify the desires of the flesh. And here, Luther, citing Augustine, notes that not having or not acting on these desires can happen only when we are no longer in our mortal flesh. Luther is a realist. Even the saints are still partly carnal, though spiritual inwardly. No one can avoid desires, but it is possible for us to keep from obeying them. Those in the church are indeed in the process of being healed, but are not fully healthy. For the latter reason, we are called flesh, for the former spirit. It is the whole man who loves chastity, and the whole man is titillated by the enticements of lust, willing and unwilling. Thus he recalls Augustine's struggle with the divided will in Confessions 8, and Luther surprises us as readers again. Yet this, too, is the glory of the grace of God. It makes us enemies of ourselves. This is how it overcomes sin. The leaven is hidden in three measures until the whole is leaven, citing what is perhaps Matthew's shortest parable. One sentence. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of wheat flour until the whole batch was leavened. Until the whole batch was leavened. This process takes time and affects a substantial change. Flour and water and salt and yeast become bread once the bread has risen and been baked. Paul goes on to say to his Galatians, for these, flesh and spirit, are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. Luther exclaims in amazement, look at how bold the apostle is saying what we Want cannot be done, even though we, as scholastic theologians, have established the will, probably on Aristotle's authority, as the queen and mistress of all our powers and desires. Luther is perhaps recalling the passage in Book 3 of the Nicomachean Ethics, where Aristotle defines the rational human being as a source of actions and deliberation sets out to discover actions within one's own power to perform. He says that what is deliberated and what is chosen are the same thing, adding that if among the things that are up to us, the desired thing that, is, that has been deliberated upon is what is chosen, choice would be the deliberate desire of things that are up to us. Desire is thus modified and informed by thought and choice and acts in accord with what one of good character, what he calls the good man, would do. 
But Paul contradicts this. Sorry about these plosive Ps. But I am carnal and sold under sin. I'll stand back. The good that I want, I do not do. The evil that I do not want, I do. Now, Luther asks, if one who is righteous and saintly complains of his sin in this way, where will the sinner and ungodly appear with their works among those who are good in general and morally good at that? The grace of God has not made the will perfectly free. Will the sinner make himself free? Why are we not showing good sense? This struggle between spirit and flesh is not resolved in this life, even when the flesh is subdued in some respects. I'm reminded of a colleague, a colleague of whom I was very fond, who having stopped smoking for a number of years, told me that if she were to be diagnosed with a terminal illness, she would take up cigarettes again, just like that. If the heart is irresolute, no work is resolute either, which prevents us from fulfilling the law perfectly. Paul has no knowledge of Aristotle, but Luther, who does, understands that the flesh, the whole human being, has descended from the fallen Adam. The flesh is the one condition that mitigates and impairs the life of the spirit. The battle, if you will, we can think of it at the very least, I guess, in, in more modern terms, is just this, this inertia that's always there, even when we're trying to be the best we can be. So that, he says, in every work we need the forgiving mercy of God and must say, and here Luther remembers Psalm 143, enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for no man living is righteous before thee. Luther, in his later longer commentary on Galatians, encapsulates this paradoxical condition of the human being as, in the Latin tag, simul justus et peccator, at the same time righteous and a sinner. To consider further the meaning of this formulation, we should turn to what Luther calls, with uncharacteristic understatement, his little book on the freedom of a Christian. He publishes this right in the year after his lectures on Paul. And it's a mere 25 pages in length in the PDF on the inter- that you can read on the Internet. In it, Luther sets out to determine what a Christian is and what the nature of freedom obtained for the believer by Christ is. He begins with the enunciation of two apparently contradictory conclusions, and these are on the handout too. A Christian is perfectly free, the Lord of all things, and subject to no one. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant in all things, subject to everyone. Both of these are distilled from two passages in Paul, one from 1 Corinthians, I am free in all things and have made myself a servant of everyone, and the other from Romans. You shall owe no one anything except that you love one another. As mentioned, he he publishes this in both Latin and German. Homines, persons, we are at once spiritual and physical beings, soul and body, and thus what Luther terms the internal and external man. The soul itself, as the internal aspect of our being, is ultimately unaltered by the states that affect the body health or sickness, 
freedom, or imprisonment. There is nothing but the word of God in the gospel as preached by Jesus that can bring life to this interior spiritual man. Luther here quotes the gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me lives forever. And of Matthew, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Everything else is dispensable. Belief in these promising words, and the promise is crucial for Luther, is a fulfillment of all the commandments and the only piety. Faith alone is sufficient, and the only work is the establishment of the word and Christ within the soul by constantly exercising and strengthening it. What then of all the commandments and the law? It seems they are to be studied and what they prescribe is to be attempted only so that man might see within them his own incapacity and learn to despair of himself. So, if you will, this is a very different trope on the whole notion of self-knowledge and the adage to know yourself. Consider the prescription of Exodus. You shall not covet, he says. Who doesn't have such desires? Who then can fulfill the law? All of us are indicted when we think of this. No one save God who declared these laws and alone and alone fulfills them in Christ the word, who is at once commandment as divine word and fulfillment as incarnate word. Recall the words of Jesus in Matthew. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to fulfill. These are the words of promise to whoever firmly adheres to them in faith, enabling them to become, as John calls them, children of God. Good works alone are incapable of this. Thus released from commandments and laws by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, a radically new freedom is born. And Luther continues, that is Christian freedom, faith alone, which does not lead us to live in idleness or do wickedness, but instead means that we require no works to obtain piety and salvation. There is no greater dishonor than for the soul not to believe God about this. Thus denying God and raising her own mind up as an idol in her heart, whereas to honor God through faith, God honors her in turn and deems her pious and truthful. This is all affected through Christ. So Luther now presents, and this is one of his most striking images, uh, of the believing soul as a bride wearing the wedding ring of faith, dowered, as he says, with the eternal righteousness of her bridegroom Christ, now absolved in this joyous exchange and unfettered from all her sins, he sees this as the fulfillment of the first commandment of the Decalogue. I am the Lord your God. You shall not have other gods besides me. The only act on the part of the soul then is to plight its troth, as it were, and thus faith alone fulfills all the commandments without all other works. Note here that Luther speaks movingly of the individual soul. His use of the marriage simile is thus not the traditional one of the church as the bride of Christ, derived from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where the apostle compared the intimate relationship of Christ to the church 
to the marriage relation of husband and wife becoming one flesh. Moreover, the you of the Exodus passage is addressed to all of Israel, the you of the Decalogue. As Luther continues his reflection on the internal man, he adds that faith empowers the believing soul with both priestly and kingly powers. As a priest, standing invisibly before God and interceding for others, as a king, having spiritual sovereignty over the body and all material things. So that, he says, I can improve my soul without the aid of any object, and even death and suffering must serve me and be useful to my salvation. As he completes, then, his exposition of the duties of the internal man, of the soul as priest and sovereign, he looks to the current teaching and practice of the church. There are so many who preach and lecture about Christ, he says, in order to evoke sympathy with him, to rage against the Jews, or thereby to act in some other, even more childish manner. However, Christ should and must be preached such that faith grows and is preserved in me and you. I must say here that even without the perspective of the last 500 years, It is striking how distant in tone this passage is from Luther's later horrific diatribe in 1543 of the Jews and their lies, which calls for the civil authorities to banish the Jews and burn their synagogues. Back to Luther. He now turns to the external man. If faith does all of this and is in all things sufficient to make one righteous, how can good works have any place in the life of the believer and why are they commanded? Isn't life um, as good as it can get now that I've won the spiritual lottery? What a bargain. Nothing remains to be done. By now, we should not be surprised, perhaps, at Luther's reply. No, my dear man, not so. It would be fine if you were solely an internal man and became completely spiritual and internal. But this will not happen until the judgment day. There is only only a beginning which the apostle called the first fruits of the Spirit. Paul also says that creation yearns and groans inwardly, eagerly awaiting adoption and redemption of the body. The flesh wants to serve the world and follow its own desires. The will balks despite the faith of the soul. Idleness gives free rein to concupiscence, requiring the restraining discipline of good works done gratuitously and freely out of love, not seeking from this any benefit of salvation, but only to please God. So works come back. Our nature is such that it wants to plume itself on its acts of virtue, laying belief and promise aside, making both the works and the worker evil and damned. But the commandments and the law each have their place. They must be understood as a source from which self-knowledge begins and contrition flows. And that's the metaphor that he uses. The heart must first be broken and faith then flows from the assurances of God. Luther earlier summarized this relationship between faith and works um, this way. We do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds, but having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. And that 
really is at the very heart of the distinction that he wants to make. No, there are many, many things that we have to do. We have to, we have to obey all of those laws, but we also must not be under the illusion of what it is that we're doing and how it is that we're doing them. He continues to use this metaphor of flowing in the final section of his treatise as he considers our relationship to each other. Once I realize that my freedom flows to me from a loving God through Christ, requiring that I do nothing more than believe it is so, with a truly believing heart, I look to my neighbor and become another Christ, so that there flows from faith and from love, he says, a free, willing, happy life of serving one's neighbor. Note here the intended range of this flow. It is meant to be universal so that the work of love, of charity, or agape is the work of all the faithful and is not restricted to the religious professionals and specialists, priests, monks, nuns, and other professed religious. And Luther again affirms that this work is utterly distinct from the saving power of faith. And now the final brief section. Sin boldly. Each of us has a vocation then, a beruf, a calling that is more than a mere job or occupation, which puts us at the service of others and not for our own benefit, whether material or spiritual. This call is an immense challenge in which we can never achieve perfection here. The Reformation, then, is thus neither a single moment in history that occurred 500 years ago, nor one event in a human life. So it's one isn't born again once, but an ongoing endeavor to be accomplished only at the end of time with the coming of Christ. Meanwhile, the demands of this life can be daunting and discouraging. Luther's close friend, Philip Melanchthon, 24 years old, a brilliant Greek scholar, and theologian, whom Luther worked closely with, found himself overcome with uncertainty, indecision, and a feeling of utter inadequacy while Luther was secluded in hiding at the Wartburg after the Diet at Worms. He wrote to Luther asking him what he was to do in the wake of the rapid and chaotic developments in Wittenberg and elsewhere in Saxony during his friend's long absence. Luther's compassionate reply to him at once embodies his understanding of Christian freedom and at the same time shows his great pastoral sensitivity to Melanchthon's anguish and hesitation. And these are Luther's words, and this is the context for sin boldly. If you are a preacher of grace, then preach a true and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. As long as we are in this world, we have We have to sin. This life is not the dwelling place of righteousness. But, as Peter says in his letter, we must look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
It is enough that by the riches of God's glory, we have come to know the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. This is a letter he wrote in 1521. So, grace is not a fiction, neither is sin. Life is a struggle and a battle in which choices must be made, work must be done, often without requisite knowledge and resolve that might make them certain. We need to recall again the fact that the experiential factor and why and how Luther comes to his, this understanding of sin and grace, his account of his own existential struggle, which we considered earlier. It began with his ardent desire for God and his experience of willing the good, yet being unable to control the direction of his will, it resulted in sin. This led him to the depths of despair and then to recognition that he could only do what he ought and what he truly wanted in the highest sense to do by going outside of himself, by living in Christ, the creative word who made and redeemed him. And all of those who believe. In his anguish, Melanchthon, whom Luther recognizes as a preacher of grace, demonstrates the same striving and transcendent belief. It is to such a one that Luther can say, with discernment and compassion, be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. And remember, too, that he ends with this image in the passage that I read you before of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So it seems to me that we come full circle now. Luther concludes this letter with the image of the Agnus Dei, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the very image that Bach and Picander celebrate and lift up in the music and poetry of the opening chorus, the great exordium of the Matthäus Passion, when the Ripieno Choir sings the chorale, O Lamb Gottes Unschuldig, in triumphant G major over the turbulent double chorus beneath in E minor, the turbulent double chorus here, where in Luther's eyes we all are. Thank you for your attention and patience. <laughs>